Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. Well, it's official. The United Kingdom and its commonwealths have a new ruler. King Charles III was coronated on Saturday, May 6th, during a ceremony that blended old traditions with some necessary modern touches. Though the weather in London, let's be honest, was damp and, well, honestly, dreary, the crowds came out to eagerly greet their monarch, waving the Union Jack and applauding the man who had waited 71 years for a promotion. Here to break it all down for us is Emily Nash, royal editor for Hello Magazine. Welcome to Group Text, Emily. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So how are you recovered at all? Uh, no, not even close. Uh, to be honest, I think it's going to take me about a month to sleep this one off. It's been very intense, but what an experience to cover this. What an experience. I'm just going to jump right in, break it all down. Like, when did the planning start? This is a great question. Um, you'd think that given there's been nearly 71 years, that it would have happened over many, many decades. But I think that actually there was a real sensitivity around this one and they couldn't fully bring plans into place until around about Christmas time just gone. So they had the London Bridge operation to, uh, you know, get through. The king obviously had a huge amount of things to get his head around. And then the beginning, the, the, the planning began in earnest towards the end of last year. So everything we saw pulled off in such a spectacular style over the weekend has really just been done in a handful of months. I mean, people take a year to plan a wedding, so I cannot imagine the, the getting that done. And for people who don't know, London Bridge, they for everybody and all world leaders, they have a death plan about That's how things right. are going to work when they die, and the Queen's was called London Bridge. That's absolutely right. Yeah, sorry, that's the code name that was used. And actually, the code name for the coronation was Operation Golden Orb, um, which now we can all picture that golden orb, which he was holding on Saturday. Um, so there has been, obviously, wider planning going on behind the scenes. But a lot of the personal touches will have been brought in just over the last few months. So Charles has talked openly about slimming down the monarchy. So who got the call saying, sorry, no room at the Abbey for you? Well, actually, you know, there were quite a few family members there. It's a really interesting one. We saw on the one hand, the working, senior working royals, they were the ones in the, the proper regalia, in the gowns, in the robes, and on the balcony at the end of the day. But the wider family were there, largely. Interestingly, some people didn't get a plus one. And these are relatives of the king's um, cousins, uh, first cousins, second cousins, that kind of thing, who went with a sibling rather than a spouse. So they definitely had to keep numbers to a minimum because, you know, you have more than 100 heads of state there as well. They were had, had charity representatives, people connected with all of their activities. And they had to be really careful not to offend anyone. But I think a lot of people understood that this wasn't going to be anything like on the same scale as it was for the last coronation in 1953. Um, just to jump right in. So I did, I watched it, the whole thing. Everything is timed down to the minute. Um, and there's an old saying, uh, promptness is the courtesy of kings. Very because nice. they don't feel, feel that it's right to leave people waiting because they know it's so complicated when they get somewhere. Now, did I see this correctly? It looked like, Charles and Camilla got loaded into the coach early. 
First of all, how are you early to anything? Absolutely. Well, this is a great question. And it is one of the few hiccups that people have picked up on on the day. Um, and given that, you know, the military precision with which this has been carried out and the hours and hours of rehearsal that went into this, it was surprising that they actually arrived at the Abbey early. So you may have seen the Prince and Princess of Wales and their children sort of racing in um, just in time to join the procession. And the king actually was sat in his carriage waiting before he could get out. And I'm sure that there have been a few questions asked about that, whether it came down to the weather, maybe the horses went faster than expected, who knows, but it, it was unusual for a royal engagement. Sure. Not just that, it looked like they had pulled up so the other car could get in and then had to back in. And it, what, Well, I mean, yeah, I, think- I, was inside, I was inside the Abbey at this point, so I didn't get such a clear clear shot at that, but you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the choreography of these things is normally absolutely spot on. So that was kind of surprising. I'm sure someone has been in a little bit of trouble for that, but the end result all went, you know, as, as well as could be expected. Yeah, because Kate and William were actually on time to the minute they were supposed to get there. But it almost looked like Charles was like, fuck it, I'm getting out. You yeah. know, it, it really did seem like enough of the waiting. I know, yeah, 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 you know, which you did make about, me laugh. If you think about the pressure on him and, you know, knowing that he was being watched and probably commentators starting to ask questions like, why isn't he getting out? What's going on? I thought that there was a very funny expression on Prince William's face as well. He looked very much like, well, like me or my husband when we're trying to get our kids out to school in the morning. You know, it's a bit like, please just put your shoes on. Just put your shoes on. He had that expression of like, we're doing our best, you guys. But actually, it turns out it wasn't their fault. It was uh, the king was was too prompt for his own party. Yeah, I was just like, oh, this isn't good. Um, speaking of the arrivals, people, I don't think realize those clothes especially the the kings those robes weigh a ton because first i was like wow he's really walking slowly like chop chop let's go and then i remember an interview with the queen saying you have no idea how heavy these garments are yeah absolutely i mean you're talking very very heavy silk velvet fabric on the robes of uh state that they walked in to the abbey with they also, you know, have a considerable width to them. You know, they needed four boys to carry each of the robes at the back. And you'll have seen that the queen walked in before the king. They couldn't walk side by side. So there was that sort of logistical challenge to start with. But then as the ceremony went through, we saw these various historic garments layered on. And at one point, I think at the point of crowning, he was wearing um, a, around nine pounds of gowns and another five pounds of bling on his head. And it's not surprising that he kind of needed someone to help him in and out of his seat at that point. Because you can't move your head, because if you put your head forward, the crown's going to fall off. Yeah, or, or, or something terrible is going to happen to your neck. <laughs> the way. Yeah, or you're going to lose, because there were all those little stairs. I'm like, oh, someone is going to wipe out. You know, uh, yeah. And nobody up there was really a spring chicken. And they're moving it, it, backwards. I think we all have a lot of concerns, right? Yeah. So now you were actually in the Abbey. And yeah. I always think about this when you watch it. You were behind, what is it called, the parapet? Well, so uh, I was sitting in, a, in an area called the North Transept, and that is behind the choir. So you you have these two rows of uh, like wooden benches where the actual 
vocal, the vocalists, the choir are sitting, mm. but also prime ministers and things like that. And we had a kind of diagonal view of the what is actually called the theatre of coronation. So I could see sort of the tops of heads. I could see the king when he was kneeling down. I could see the back of the coronation chair. Um, but we we also were provided with screens so we could follow the ceremony in full. Um, and that was just like a, a real pinch me moment, you know, to, to see it on the screen in front of me, but know it was happening just a few meters away. So for the people in the back near the door, they can actually see because there are screens. There are screens, absolutely. Because you, I mean, you'd feel a bit shortchanged, wouldn't you, if you'd uh, been sitting in the abbey for three or four hours before the ceremony even starts. And uh, and then you couldn't actually see the, the crowning moment, so to speak. So... Yeah, that that was um, a, a huge advantage, actually, because what you get from being in there, um, Melissa, is the atmosphere, which is, I mean, incomparable, really. The the music sounds insanely good in in the flesh. The sound, I mean, the smell of the flowers, the colours, the costumes, the outfits. Uh, it was like a real assault on the senses. Because that doesn't come through so much on through the screen, but I can only imagine just sitting there for that historical moment must have been overwhelming in a lot of ways. It, it was, and it was actually surprisingly more emotional than I'd expected. You know, I think I thought my background is as a news journalist and I've been covering the world now for a decade, um, but I didn't expect to find it as moving as I did in some parts. And weirdly, it was the moment that we didn't see when he disappeared behind the anointing screen that, that kind of got me. I, I felt a bit of a lump in my throat at that moment. Can you explain the anointing screen? Because the queen did this too. This is a moment where the monarch has total and complete privacy. Yeah. Why? I mean, what goes on? What What is that moment? So traditionally, and, and when we say traditionally, I mean for more than a thousand years, this ritual has been conducted where the Archbishop of Canterbury anoints the monarch on the head, the chest, and the hands with a consecrated oil. In this case, it had been consecrated in Jerusalem and uh, made specially for this occasion. And the idea of making it private is because it is considered to be a moment between God and the sovereign. So historically, uh, people believe that this role was appointed by God, and therefore this is symbolizing that sort of contract, if you like, and it's you saw that the the king had his tunic removed. When he went behind the screen, he was just wearing a simple white shirt. And I think that's why it was so moving, because it was very simple um, in such a grand setting. And he actually looked almost vulnerable at that point, I felt. Um, it, it, was, it really sort of stood out against the backdrop of everything else. Well, also, he has no poker face, which is very not British. I mean, you could see waves of emotion crossing his face the whole time. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, a lot of people have asked me this and said, look, he looked very solemn and he looked like weighed down by it all. And I think, I mean, first of all, he was quite literally physically weighed down. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, but I think the pressure on of on him of that moment um despite having rehearsed for such a long time it's something he's known was coming for his entire life um it's only come about because he's lost his mother there are some real mixed emotions around that and i think for me it was lovely to see that while he was incredibly uh, as you say sort of very visibly 
moved and uh, perhaps struggling to contain his emotions during the, the very intimate moments of the ceremony. What I liked is as he was walking in, he could see people he knew in the congregation and he was recognizing people and giving them huge smiles. And I think he will have found that really reassuring on a day where he knew that millions of people were watching all around the world. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. This episode of Group Text is sponsored by Factor. Show some love to our sponsors and you'll be showing love to Group Text. Factor's mouth-watering meals are a lifesaver for non-cooks like me. Say goodbye to culinary calamities and hello to hassle-free dining with chef-made, dietitian approved dishes arriving at your door in a snap. Visit factormeals.com slash grouptext50 and use code grouptext50 to get 50% off. From sunrise to moonrise, they've got snacks, smoothies, and more to keep your hunger at bay. Because who wants to face the day without breakfast to start your day or a midday munchie? Factor is the ultimate fix if you crave quick, high-end choices made simple. Everything I need in my life. Factor is the ultimate fix if you crave quick, high-end choices made simple. Everything I need in my life. So do yourself a favor and head to factormeals.com slash grouptext50 and use code grouptext50 to get 50% off. That's code grouptext50 at factormeals.com com slash group text 50 to get 50% off. Um, the, one of the big moments was when William came up and, you know, can, can, whatever it's called, liege of limb. You saw Charles's eyes get red. Yeah. Which I thought was very, you know, it's really a break from Royal protocol. Absolutely. I think that is something people will come to know about King Charles. He is a sensitive man. And we know, I mean, that he doesn't um, always contain his feelings about things. Over the years, we've heard him speak up about all manner of things. And that's something he can't do now as king. But we also know how troubled his relationship has been with his family on and off over the years. And so I think that symbolized something which will have meant so much to him, you know, having a son and heir give the oath of allegiance, uh, give these words of fealty, which again are very um, traditional and historic, but in that moment were very, very personal between them. Okay, let's get right into family because everybody's talking about how they handled Harry. Yeah. Which I thought they handled well. What is the consensus there? He came in with his cousins. It wasn't like he was, you know, ostracized and sneaking in the back. No, no, I think you're absolutely right, Minister. I think most people here feel like it was done just as well as it could be. You know, this really had to not become about that relationship and about everything that's gone before. This, you know, is a state occasion. It's a moment in British history. The focus had to be on the king and the queen. I think it's great Harry was there. Whatever has gone on, whatever is continuing to go on, 
uh, behind the scenes, it really shows that he was prepared to, to be there on the biggest day of his father's life. And I'm sure the king will really have appreciated that. Now, obviously, it was an incredibly brief visit. So there was no time for a proper catch up, all the conversations that we're hoping will take place. That would be down the line. But I think that the fact that he came, you know, will really stand them in good stead moving forward. And you're absolutely right. I think he was there, but he didn't become the focus. Okay, so that's going to take me right into my next question, which is he has become a true American. The fact that Dior put out a press release that they dressed him, I felt was wrong. And there's no way they put out a press release without him knowing. And that felt, you know, very American, like advertising that you got a free suit. How was that received? You know, there have been a lot of discussions about this. Oh, from my point of view, I don't see that it's so much of a problem because we know who's dressed all the women, okay? So if you're happy to know that Alexander McQueen have dressed Kate or uh, that Susanna has dressed uh, the Duchess of Edinburgh, or that the gowns are made by Ravenscroft, who've been, you know, robe makers to the king for however many years. I don't see why he shouldn't also have that question answered. Maybe it's because it is coming from the couturiers themselves that it jars with people a little, but, you know, he's, he's on the outside world now. So I don't think we can be too critical of this. Yeah, see, because I feel like with the women and these sort of public-facing women, of course, they're going to say it. I just thought, you know, we didn't talk about who made, you know, Edward's pants. I think we we had enough detail on the day. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe no one wanted to know. I I, I know, I do know exactly what you mean, but I think think we kind of have a double standard about this. um, Okay, why no tiara moment? Yet Kate managed to thread the needle on that oh, one. She she uh, she pulled it off amazingly well. I think it was it was a bit of a masterstroke actually because this was about not repeating 1953 and having every woman in the congregation in a tiara and every man in a coronet. You know, we you know, the, the royals cannot have those optics in this day and age. We're living through a cost of living crisis in the UK. People are struggling to feed their families. You know, this had to not be all about the opulence, even though, of course, it was. You know, we had the crown jewels in, inside the abbey um, and all the things we've talked about already. I think it was a really beautiful way of combining the look of a tiara with something a lot softer and more natural and really in keeping with the king's love of nature um, and the, the Royal School of Needlework and all of these um, very traditional elements that made up that day so I think played it really really well that's not to say they weren't all dripping in jewelry because they were but I think it's it sends out a a, a softer image I think of of the wealth that is you know undoubtedly there what what caught my eye was Camilla's sister's brooch I was just like oh my god I was like wow that's a nice thank you gift but Explain to people what the significance of the different robes was and why the hell was Anne in that hat? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, this is complicated, but the various robes, I mean, for example, the purple and the blue and red that Kate was wearing 
is a robe from something called the Royal Victorian Order, which is a kind of, uh, not a club, but um, it's a, an order of uh, um, of honour that was given to a, you usually get it when you become a member of the royal family or if you've worked for the royal family for a long time. But robes are only worn by the very most senior members there. So they decided robes was the dress code. So members of the royal family wore whatever robe was appropriate to their ranking, if you like. Um, obviously, the king and queen had their robes of state and robes of estate. You may have noticed Camilla's on the way back was embroidered with an incredible um, display of flowers, nature, even bugs, you know, butterflies, bees, um, other insects. And this, again, is all about the king being um, passionate about the natural world. And I think these really lovely personal touches made it made these very archaic garments a lot more relatable. It kind of softened the whole thing a little bit and, and brought us back down to earth quite literally. Well, because Charles went from red to gold. Now, yes. Mm -hmm. I knew you were going to ask me about the gold. Um, I was lucky enough to actually go in and look at these garments a few weeks ago as part of our preparation for this. And those items are made of cloth of gold. That is when you take silk thread and you uh, wind gold, actual gold thread around them. Now, none of these have been made for this occasion. They're all historic garments. One of them, I think, was made for uh, the coronation of George IV in 1821. So these are things they've already got in the closet, okay? No one has gone out and spent buckets of money on new items. So for all they looked really opulent, um, they were being recycled and we know hand me down. Yeah. I mean, the King loves sustainability. So they've been very carefully preserved and looked after. You can normally see them on display in the tower of London among the crown jewels. Um, and again, they're, they're designed to look like priestly robes. So it all comes back to this ancient, um, relationship between the sovereign and God. Cause it, it I mean, you've got to say the, the Brits do do you know, you do ceremony and pomp and circumstance very, very well. Yeah, I, I think no one's kind of interrupted it. That's the thing, apart from, yeah. you know, during the Civil War uh, in the 1600s. But it, it's it's just continued and continued. And I think that's what gives it its solemnity, but, but also its charm. And we're just, you know, looking at the interest from all over the world in this, I think it probably is a good thing for us. It it makes us unique. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a lot of protocol was broken. The fact that, and I thought this was great, that they, that Charles had his grandson, and I know it was a couple of his godchildren as his pages, and Camilla had her grandchildren, which yeah. is lovely. So How is that the breaking of protocol? Well, in the past, uh, you know, the people carrying out the ceremonial roles during coronation would always be members of the aristocracy, people whose families had carried out that particular role over centuries. And this was more of a meritocracy than it has been in the past, although obviously these were personal appointments by the king and queen when it came to the pages. But a lot of the people we saw carrying in um, the items of regalia, for example, in the past would always have been done by lords of the realm, dukes, 
um, members of the royal family. And these, this time round, were people who have served their communities, who are now elevated, you know, in the House of Lords here, but there was a former nurse. Um, there was a former TV presenter who has done a huge amount for inclusion and diversity in this country. And just the fact that women were doing it full stop was a first for coronations. We also saw female bishops involved for the first time. So it was a hugely different makeup um, to what we saw in 1953. So one of the other things is there was a lot of personal, personal touches. Uh, what was the name of the band? Accession? The acapella the group? Choir. The Ascension Choir. The Ascension yeah. Choir, who actually sang at Harry and Meghan's wedding. And I heard that Charles requested them personally well, to have them sing. No, not, not many people know that, um, that Charles requested the choir at Harry and Meghan's wedding too. That was his idea. So it's entirely in keeping that he would have. It was not quite the same makeup as a choir, but the same some of the same people involved. So I think that was a, a beautiful touch. And again, going back to this idea of inclusion, um, they had music sung in, in Welsh, Irish, mm -hmm. and um, Gaelic, Scottish Gaelic for the first time in a coronation. I think that really will go a long way to helping to unite people in other parts of, of the UK that don't always necessarily have much of an affiliation with the royal family. So there were all these clever considerations you could tell he had spent a huge amount of time thinking about how how to play this why isn't he getting the credit with the younger generation that he deserves being clearly we found out he's a very forward thinker with the environment and preservation of important buildings and all and organic farming and yet it still feels like and especially with the concert that the generation he should have that should be raising him up doesn't care or just literally did not want to perform like i that's crazy to me yeah that they I had to go to american performers yeah i think it's i think it's sad um interestingly i was talking to one of the performers um from the coronation concert this morning and he was saying that you know he he agreed without hesitation because and he knows a lot about charles's backstory what he's done for the Prince's Trust, you know, he's helped over a million young people in this country from the bribe backgrounds to find employment, to find uh, opportunities. People like Jimmy Choo, you probably own a pair of Jimmy Choo shoes, right? Oh, yeah. He came to this country as um, an immigrant, as uh, a, a cobbler, essentially, and he began his business with a grant from the Prince's Trust. Idris Elba, again, is another person who was helped um, and these are people who might not otherwise have been successful if they hadn't been given that platform by this incredible charity. But you're right on the environment. He's been way ahead of the game for 50 years. He's been talking about climate change. I think people will will come around to it. You know, unfortunately, he his life hasn't been without issues. We all know we've watched The Crown. We we remember the history. We had the tragedy of Diana in the middle of it, and. And I think it's a shame that for a lot of people that has become the way that they define him. I really hope that with this coronation and everything that's come uh, uh, come with it, he's always able to reset um, the way that, that people see him. Um, and I, I think, you know, like the late Queen, she had a, she had a period um, probably in the 80s, 90s where she didn't, 
have the universal um, adoration that she did later in life. And I think that's kind of part of the nature of monarchy. You have your ups and downs and you just have to sort of ride the way because you're not there because of your latest hit record or because of, you know, your latest big campaign. You are there for the long haul and you have to just go with the flow, I guess. Uh, Kate has become the uh, best at sending messages through her sartorial choices. Like, you know, I read that she was wearing Diana's earrings. Um, who else was doing that, that you could see, you know, they're sending a message of inclusion or all these different things other than I didn't know about, you know, a nurse being asked to carry some of the crown jewels. And by the way, if you're a normal person, wouldn't you just like be touching it a bunch? I mean, you'd be, <laughs> I would just be like, you'd can be I just touch it? On, wouldn't you? Yeah. It, I, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think Camilla is another case in point, right? You know, she's got this coronation gown on. She has chosen the design of Bruce Oldfield, someone who has dressed her for decades. At this point, he, he used to dress Diana as well. And his backstory is remarkable. He was brought up in a care home. Um, he had a, a difficult upbringing. He was supported by a charity called Bernardo's, of which Camilla is a patron. And what a statement that makes. You know, to say, you are the person I'm choosing to dress me on the most important day of my life. And not just that, she asked him to embroider into her dress the names of her children and grandchildren, even her dogs. And I think that's just such a, an expression of how warm she is as a person and, and how important her family is to her. So again, these messages in royal fashion come through thick and fast. So we're talking about Camilla now. My mother, as mm-hmm. everyone knows, was, was quite good friends with them. Mm-hmm. And what she always said, especially with Camilla, A, how down to earth she is. Nice. And that she's really, for lack of a better term, abroad. She smokes, <laughs> she drinks, she laughs, she swears. And what I always found hilarious is they love gossip. Oh, They yeah. love gossip. And my, after an event, my mother was used to get a call from lady so-and-so or whoever was, was Camilla's very, is her best friend. And my mother would have to tell her the gossip <laughs> and then she would go back and share. So what you were in the Abbey, what's the gossip? What didn't we see? By the way, how they handled Louis was brilliant. He's there. He's gone. He's back. I mean, that's what you do with a child of that age. Absolutely. And he, he behaved himself so well. I mean, he obviously saved some antics for the balcony and for the carriage, which was great fun. But um, it, it, yeah, I think they, they do have a sense of humor, 100%. I think we might see that more and more. You know, we've seen that the King and Queen pop up on American Idol, I believe, overnight, which none of us were expecting. We're told that's just a, there was a completely spontaneous decision to do that because Lionel and Katie were in the castle um, doing a live cross to the show. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that humour. And yes, they're both incredibly well connected. You know, they have a lot of friends in the arts, in the media. I, you know, I would love to be a, be a fly on the wall during one of Camilla's tea parties, hearing hearing the stuff she must hear, because she's a real people person. She cares a lot about people. She cares a lot about the people who work for, for her. She's interested in their families. She's interested in people. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, again, 
you just love to be be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations. Oh yeah, the, the I need to say the cursing and the drinking and you know fuck off and all that fun stuff. But yeah, she's always like they love gossip. So that was uh, you know who doesn't? Uh, I want to go back to the kids because they are amazing. I mean, talk about well behaved. But my favorite moments are when Charlotte's basically shushing Louie. I mean, she really yeah. seems like she rules the roost with those brothers. You know she's the one beating them both up. <laughs> I think, you know, she she could be a bit of a princess and a character in future there. She's, she's definitely, I think, got a control over the way that her, her brothers are behaving, but also in that very sort of tender, big sisterly way, looking out for them more than anything, I think. Uh, and she just looks so adorable wearing the sort of miniature outfit uh, that her mother was wearing. I think she's going to be one to watch in the future for sure. What's the moment that you're going to tell your grandkids about and say, I was there? Oh, gosh. Um, well, actually, it probably, by the time, God willing, I have grandchildren, uh, it probably will be relating to Charlotte because... There was a moment as the king was starting his procession out again where they were singing the national anthem, God Save the King, and they were both fixed on him and just watching him, walk, this is their grandpa, right, walking past with the imperial state crown on his head and just singing along like that was a completely normal thing to do. What a memory for them. You know, one day it's going to be their father. One day it's going to be their big brother. That's just quite incredible to think about. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much uh taking the time with us because I know you need a drink and a nap. <laughs> Maybe several, Melissa, to be honest. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much. And if you want to learn more about the Royals, check out Hello Magazine's Right Royal Podcast. Emily, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ahura Media Production.